Welcome to Integrative Oncology Talk, where we discuss the latest science and opinions from leading voices in integrative oncology. Integrative oncology utilizes complementary therapies and lifestyle strategies to help those affected by cancer using personalized approaches and evidence-based recommendation. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Santosh Rao, a medical oncologist and integrative oncologist, Dr. Judith Lacey, a supportive care and integrative oncology physician, and Lee Leibel, an oncology mind-body therapist. With support from the Society of Integrative Oncology, an international multidisciplinary organization whose mission is to advance the science and education of integrative oncology worldwide. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the participants workplace or SIO, and they're not meant to offer medical advice. The information, opinions, and recommendations in this podcast are for general information only. Before making any changes in your healthcare or lifestyle, please discuss with your healthcare provider. Welcome to this episode of Integrative Oncology Talk. My name is Lee Leibel, and today we'll talk about World Cancer Day and the role it plays in global cancer prevention and control, and why health disparities are everyone's problem. Today we'll be focusing on Africa, specifically Nigeria, and the staggering fact that today in Nigeria, there are only 10 clinical cancer trials in a population of more than 200 million people. We'll also look at gender inequality in Nigeria and how cancer stigma primarily affects women. Our guest today is Mr. Runsi Chitaba, the founder and executive director of Project Pink Blue Charitable Trust, which is based in Abuja, Nigeria. He's also a doctoral student in gerontology at Miami University in Ohio. Mr. Chitaba will tell us about some of his organization's innovative healthcare solutions that can be replicated in other low middle income countries. And we'll look at how we can all work together to eliminate the avoidable injustices that plague our global society and healthcare systems. Thank you all so much for joining us today, and we hope you enjoy our podcast. Welcome to today's edition of Integrative Oncology Talk podcast sponsored by the Society for Integrative Oncology. My name is Lee Leibel, and I am excited to be joining the podcast team as one of the three co-hosts alongside Dr. Santosh Rao and Dr. Judith Lacey. Today's episode of the podcast is in recognition of World Cancer Day. Uh, the 23rd annual World Cancer Day. And World Cancer Day is an international day marked on the 4th of February to raise awareness of cancer and to encourage its prevention, detection, and treatment. The World Cancer Day is led by the Union for International Cancer Control in Geneva, Switzerland. And the primary goal is to significantly reduce illness and death caused by cancer. And it's an opportunity to rally the international community to end the injustice of preventable suffering from cancer. And the World Cancer Day is observed by the United Nations. This year's theme is Close the Care Gap. And I am delighted to have special guest today, Mr. Runsi Chitaba from Abuja, Nigeria, joining us to talk about the state of cancer care in Nigeria. 
And we have decided that we will call each other by our first names, Runcie and Lee. So this will be the Runcie and Lee show today. <laughs> and I'm going to turn it over right now to Runcie for him to uh, introduce himself and tell us a little bit more about what he does as the founder and director of Project Pink Blue. Runcie, over to you. Thank you so much, uh, Lee. I'm really, really excited, um, you know, to be invited to this uh, very interesting podcast. And just to comment to you all that it's really important to continue to share knowledge and exchange ideas on how we continue to reduce the uh, global burden of cancer. My name is Ron C.W. Chidebe. I'm the founder and executive director of Project Pink Blue. And uh, interestingly, I'm also a member of the World Cancer Day Advisory Group in, in Geneva. Yeah, so uh, I provide support and technical advice, and we decide some of the teams around uh, World Cancer Day every, you know, every of the cohorts of the different years. So I'm really delighted to be here. Thank you. Mm, thank you so much for joining us, Renzi. So, I mean, one of the main things I want to explore today is the amazing work that Project Pink Blue is doing around World Cancer Day and specifically with the walk that you host every February 4th. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Okay. So uh, what we've been doing is we've been using the Global Day, which is the World Cancer Day, as a flagship program to really mobilize communities, to mobilize our government, to mobilize people, to mobilize different organizations and companies to really take action in reducing the burden of cancer. So what is really interesting in what we do is that we don't just host a program, but we mobilize other people to also do something in their own different ways. So we have specifically two main events that we host. We have the World Cancer Day Walk, Race, Cycle, and Marathon Against Cancer. And in this event, we have five kilometers walk and about 10 kilometers run, which is race. And we have almost like 45 kilometers cycling. We have usually sometimes over 100 cyclists who cycle around Abuja to create awareness wearing the World Cancer Day jersey to create that awareness. And then we have these motorbike riders who also do the same. So we use this event to also not just create awareness, but we also provide cancer screening. So we usually provide breast cancer screening, prostate cancer screening, um, cervical cancer screening. And um, this year we're actually hoping to also provide a hepatitis screening because hepatitis is glossary related to liver cancer. And what we also do, apart from the work, is that we also host what we call the World Cancer Day Symposium, where we engage Federal Ministry of Health, policymakers, politicians, to tell them what we have achieved as a country in cancer and what needs to be done more. Yeah, so this is really how we are really leading change and galvanizing and mobilizing people in our country to really care and reduce the burden of cancer. Yeah, that's amazing work that you're doing. And I know that Nigeria has one of the highest cancer mortality rates in the world with approximately four out of five cases uh, resulting in death. These are statistics according to the Global Cancer Observatory. 
And I know one of the hallmarks of cancer in Nigeria is late presentation. Can you just give us a little bit of background on cancer care in Nigeria or the lack of cancer care in Nigeria? And maybe a little bit about just what's going on in the country and why the work you're doing with Project Pink Blue, these grassroots projects, really getting awareness out into the the public about a cancer it is so important. Okay, I would really say that in Nigeria, breast, cervical, prostate, non-Hodgkin lymphoma, uh, liver, and non-melanoma skin, and um, colorectal, ovarian, um, cancer, and rectum and leukemia are the most common form of malignancy in Nigeria. And it is really estimated that about 31 women die every single day from breast cancer. And um, it's also very painful that, um, you know, about 26 women also die from cervical cancer. And these are cancers that are really like, cervical cancer is really, really preventable. And that's that's uh, every day? Every day, yeah. Wow. That's every day. So, you know, it is really painful because what we have in terms of breast cancer is that we have 26,000 cases, you know, annually and almost 11,000 deaths. So it's like fairly like 50 to 40% of people who have breast cancer die, just like the data that you actually talk from, from Globacom um, and IAC. So it's really, really a painful statistics. And I will tell you why these statistics and why the late presentation. I am really an advocate um, that is against people really saying that patients present really late. And um, I think it's not always the truth, especially for a country like Nigeria. I think most patients, late presentation is not the reason why many patients die from cancer. But I think it's also about the poor healthcare system mm. that really promotes, that really hasn't set up a system that could encourage early detection. Mm. Secondly, it is also important to understand that early detection is not enough, but also early treatment. So because we have a very poor system, and I will explain this in more detail, uh, we don't have a national screening program where people who can, who really are invited, who are at risk are invited to come receive breast cancer screening or receive maybe like mammogram or even receive like cervical screening. So when there is no program like this in a system, in a country, people would not really know of these symptoms until they are already at a very late stage. Sometimes people report at a very early stage, but there are no cancer healthcare services that are available for them to get treatment quickly. Before getting on this podcast, I was talking to a journalist who is planning to do a documentary. And one of the things we were talking about was that she has a, she has a story of a woman who was really, was have to travel from Meduguri to Abuja to have access to radiotherapy. Meduguri to Abuja is like about, maybe like 14 hours by road. Oh my gosh. And this woman who has stage three um, breast cancer had to travel from by road for 14 hours. And on arriving at Abuja, where she was supposed to take up the radiotherapy, the machine broke down. Oh, boy. 
So the problem is that cancer patients are paying with their blood in Nigeria. And this is being fueled by the poor healthcare system. The government on its part, it's not really taking cancer as a priority. So these are just the problems. If you think about other issues in terms of um, access to cancer medications, you will also see that some of the, that, I mean, apart from the inequity we have, um, as a, I mean, globally, there is also this inequity within the country where only people like in Abuja and Lagos are the ones that have access to the best cancer care. So people in rural areas don't have access to it. So you have this challenge. You have the other challenge of financial toxicity. Not many patients are able to really afford cancer care and people will just decide to just stay in their house and die of this disease than going to the hospital because they start treatment and they can't really complete it. The final issue I want to talk about is looking at from a global perspective, the global inequity. I mean, cancer investment and funding is not reaching Africa. It's not reaching Nigeria in specific. So you have a lot of money, you have a lot of funding, you have a lot of aid that is going to communicable diseases like HIV AIDS, tuberculosis, but almost zero is really going to cancer control. So there is a lot more that needs to be done to reduce this inequity in accessing cancer financing because when non-profit and hospitals and organizations and donor agencies begin to fund organizations in Nigeria, that could help them to strengthen their capacity and engage with government more to be more transparent and increase support for cancer patients. That's so interesting. You know, um, just talking about your third point, you know, I was going to ask you about infectious disease and other population health issues, that that's always been a priority in the in the country. And now that you're faced with an increase in non-communicable disease, the so-called lifestyle diseases, and, and of course, cancer, that it's a burden on an already burdened healthcare system. On point two that you mentioned about financial toxicity, I know that you produced a documentary I believe it was last year, following three women who had breast cancer diagnoses. And it was I, I did watch it. It was incredibly powerful. And I was struck by one of the women's stories. It may have been Comfort uh, was her name, but she didn't have enough money to pay for her chemotherapy for infusion treatment. And I, I remember that, that Project Pink Blue undertook a social media campaign to try to help her raise money. And she did have her first treatment. And then she didn't have the money for her second chemotherapy treatment. I mean, this is, this is profound. Yeah. Yeah. So you see, the story of comfort is like the story of almost all Nigerian women. And I keep saying it, there is a huge gender inequality. I mean, cancer control today in Nigeria and Africa is a clear example of global inequity and also a clear example of gender inequity that is seen because more women are really impacted by this disease and most men are the ones who are in leadership positions. And so it doesn't make sense to them because they are not really that much impacted by this disease. 
compared to other diseases like COVID-19, HIV AIDS that impact both the male and the female. So it's really important to see the to see it from the lens of this inequity and inequalities on on women as well. And and I think this is also fairly the same story in many African countries, you know. So I think there's a lot we can do. COVID has taught us a big lesson, but unfortunately, global leaders have rewind back and have just gone back to all their closes and no one, you know, is doing a lot more. I'll give you an example, right? COVID-19 came and how many people were killed by COVID-19 in Nigeria, for instance, about just 3,000 people or like 4,000 people, right? Mm. But COVID-19 vaccine were just being imported and being sent into different countries all over the world. But cervical cancer, which through the HPV vaccine, we can prevent, you know, over like 10,000 deaths every year, right, in Nigeria alone. But many women don't have access to this HPV vaccine, but the same vaccine have been all bought over by high-income countries. So, you know, we, 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 I mean, global leaders still really haven't or haven't learned a lot or doesn't really want to focus to make global health truly global and ensure that low-income countries or countries that are battling with a lot of diseases are able to really put this disease on check when we have a vaccine that can really protect women. Renzi, thank you for bringing up gender inequality. Um, Such an important issue. And I wonder if we can talk a little bit about some of the obstacles um, that women face in making their decision to have screening or not to have screening. We had talked about stigma of cancer. We had talked about fatalism. I mean, can you sort of explore that a little? There are so many. I will start from treatment, which is the most popular one. We've had so many women who have refused to really do mastectomy removal of the breast because they believe that when they do that, their husband will actually leave them. And that is because it has actually happened. There are so many women whose husband have abandoned them and left them, you know, because they have breast cancer. There are also situations whereby we've also seen situations whereby some women have refused to go for uh, visual inspection with acetic acid, which is the cervical screening for women because it has to do with the genital area because their husband will not allow them to do that. There are also other situations whereby, you know, the HPV vaccine, you know, it's a whole lot of, you know, women-related suffering that need to be unpacked. That need to be unpacked because it's, it's a huge burden on, on women, especially when they come up with this disease, and very little support is meant for them. Many women who have breast cancer today, most of them became divorced. Their husband divorced them. This is entirely different from what you see in high-income countries because the survivorship has become really high. I have a patient just a few months ago, she died and her, she was about getting married. In fact, her, she was about getting married and when she, when she had reoccurrence of her cancer, 
the man actually refused in going forward with the wedding. Oh my gosh. So, yeah, refused to go. But so these are the, these are really very huge sense gender issues. Even our politicians, many of our politicians don't even know that men could also have breast cancer. Yeah, so it's a lot of it's a I think it, 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 I don't want to use the word cultural because I don't think it's really culturally related. But I think it's a lot more of um, things that we can do by educating our people because several years ago, we don't know about this disease, but right now the disease is coming to us. So I don't see a lot of the culture thing, but I see a lot of the education thing. And I will tell you what something, right? More Nigerians and more Africans are beginning to be more European than the Europeans, more Americans than the Americans. Like, you know, Cancer, we know, is a lifestyle disease, and it really so. What we eat really reflect this. So it has also been established by research that um, you know um, all sort of uh, um, you know um, frozen um, processed meats are really associated with this. Several years ago, like twenty years ago, we don't have all this incursion of processed meat and all the rest. That is coming now. People yeah. are feeling like. If I am bigger, I'm more, uh, it shows I'm wealthier, you know. So smoking, all this lifestyle is increasing. Africa used to, I mean, is a fairly younger population, Nigeria as well. Right now, life expectancy is increasing. So more people are like, you know, getting older. Age is a risk factor in cancer. So it's a complete, it's a complex issues that need to be unpacked. Unfortunately, the health system, it's not really helping out and that's no sufficient resources to really educate the population. Can you talk a little bit about the important role that nonprofits and non-governmental agencies play in, in cancer care in, in Nigeria? Sure. So I have to really be honest that the nonprofit have been doing a lot and they, they are not really commended as they should be. For instance, my organization project, Pink Blue, apart from the World Cancer Day, every year we partner with the U.S. government, U.S. Department of State and U.S. Mission in Nigeria in bringing two U.S.-based professors to come to Nigeria to provide training to Nigerian pharmacists, Nigerian doctors, Nigerian nurses. And in turn, they also learn and not to take what they benefit in the U.S. for granted. Because sometimes people really will continue to ask for more and will not appreciate what they have out of privilege. So those kind of exchange programs is really important, not just for Nigerian doctors or Nigerian healthcare workers, but also the American doctors who come. So my organization is reading that project. We also have so many nonprofits in the country that are actually leading civic cancer campaign. We know of Medicaid Cancer Foundation, the First Ladies Against Cancer. Mm -hmm. yeah. We know of some Nigerians who are based in the U.S. that are leading clinical trial research in millions of dollars in Nigeria. I know of one professor, Folakemi Odedino. She's based at Mayo Clinic in Florida, and she's been leading a phenomenal prostate cancer project using saliva and all the rest of it in driving clinical, uh, clinical trials for prostate cancer. And she's also, I also know of... Um, you know, other intervention at Convergence University, also leading clinical trials. All these different initiatives driven by nonprofit, driven by research institutions 
are really commendable. I think days are gone when you hear people saying that Nigeria and Africa does not have the institutional capacity to do research or institutional capacity to lead awareness or to lead intervention. It's no longer the case. The truth is that if whatever you want in any community, if the community doesn't have it, you should plan to support the community to have it. Then we can do the intervention. It's not just all about, it's not good enough to always expect every community to have everything you need for every intervention. So we're making progress, but it's still a lot more that needs to be done because the population is too much. Imagine over 200 million people and over 100,000 um, cancer cases. And all in total, what we have, we have less than 10 clinical trials happening in a population of over 200 million. So you see that the scientists and global cancer control have a lot to benefit in including more Nigerians and more Africans in clinical trial because the population is there and the data can really help to inform better care in, 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 in the world. Wow. I mean, that statistic, 10 clinical trials for a population of over 200 million, yeah. that's, that's astonishing. Can you share a little bit about how many oncologists you have in the country? I know there's no comprehensive cancer center in the country. And what about the radiation machines? Can you just sort of, you know, walk us through what cancer care looks like? Yeah. Okay. So for a population of over 200 million, Nigeria has only four doctors per 10,000 patients. Four doctors per 10,000? Four doctors per 10,000 patients. And we actually have about um, 16.1 nurses and a midwife for about 10,000 patients. And uh, so in terms of clinical oncology, we have just about 80 clinical oncologies for over 100,000 cancer patients. And then for the entire country, we have about 11 comprehensive cancer centers. It's not really comprehensive in, in the right sense of comprehensive comparing to other world, but we call it cancer centers of excellence. So these cancer centers of excellence really have like radiotherapy and all the rest. And out of all these centers, we have about eight to nine that are government owned. And then we have two to three, four. Okay, well, the ones without radiotherapy, we have about four to five that um, you know, are private centers. Out of all these two, two centers, about 11 of them, only three to four to five radiotherapy machines are working at a time. You know, so there are some regions, for instance, the south-south part of Nigeria that has almost over 40 million population, have only one radiotherapy center that is working right now and is a private center. For more than three years, Project Pinglu have been leading campaign advocating for this particular region to have one single radiotherapy that could work because women have to travel like 12 hours to eight hours to the capital city to be able to really, you know, have access to, 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 to this uh, radiotherapy care. Then in terms of cancer, um, cancer, cancer, um, you know, treatment, access to cancer medicine. I mean, I've talked about it a little bit before, but it's also important to mention that most chemotherapy in Nigeria are not field tested with Nigerians. You know, mm, so great point. It's really, 
it's really the, the, there is a potential of those medications failing because um, you know they are not really. We can. I'm not sure we can really generalize generalize like 100. You know, with them, mm. for the entire continent, Africa has less than 120 um, open clinical trials happening for the entire continent, and That's... most of these clinical trials really exist more in Egypt, Algeria, Kenya, and South Africa. Not really many in West Africa. In palliative care, I mean, you already open it up by showing that about 70% of most cancer are really diagnosed in late stages. So a greater percentage of our patients always require palliative care. Unfortunately, most of our cancer patients don't even have access to palliative care. Pain drugs are so difficult to have access to, you know, so arguably about 15, only 15% of of the 70% of patients who require palliative care really have access to it in Nigeria. So it becomes a very difficult situation for a lot of people because they have to die and they have to live in pain and die in pain. So and most, most of them are usually women. Most of them are usually women. And it's usually like breast and cervical cancer. Uh, because don't forget that cervical cancer comes with this very heavy bleeding and very heavy plane that that really that really you know come come with it. So you know um, uh, it's it, it's just painful in the area of um, screening and diagnosis. The mammograms are not usually so available, but you know it's improving right now. Many public and many private sectors investments are really increasing in the country, and it, they are they are really showing hope and. S- and there have been so much simple technologies that are being used now to really screen for breast cancer, to screen for cervical cancer, that is making diagnosis a bit more cheaper. You know, talking about palliative care and the lack of um, palliative care services, I know that there is no uh, really psychological support for people who have been diagnosed with cancer. Can you talk about that a little bit? Oh, Yeah. So you see, um, that I think that's also where I think um, the Society for Integrative um, Care and on- Integrative Oncology, um, I mean, this is where I think the Society for Integrative Oncology have a lot of work to do because, you know, we need to begin to drive that global campaign to really understand that surviving cancer is beyond just the physiotherapy, the physical um, treatment, the chemotherapy, it has a lot to do with other integrative medicine, things like yoga, things like, you know, being self-aware, things like psychological support, things like mindfulness, people putting their mind to something. And I will tell you, today we have one of the highest abscomments from cancer care in Africa. That is because the the pain that comes with even treating cancer sometimes could be more than actually even having cancer itself. So we need to really integrate that. My organization project, Pink Blue, started a fundraising during my birthday in 2021, and we raised about, 
you know, almost, I think, 1,500 um, pounds. And Lee, you also contributed to that fundraising. <laughs> and your name is probably written on the board of the organization in, in Nigeria, in Abuja. And we also raised about $22,000 to start the first, the first psychological support for cancer patients in Abuja. Amazing. So there is need. There is the need to really extrapolate this kind of support, reach out to more people in other communities to really psychologically be ready, psychologically fit to continue treatment, to start treatment, to sustain treatment. That is, these are really critical issues. And, you know, we have a lot of work to do. Indeed, we do. And how can the Society for Integrative Oncology support uh, the advancement of integrative oncology in low middle income countries? I think there are many ways. I think one way we can start, it's really about evidence generation. Mm. I like data a lot. You know, there's a need to do research, there's a need to deep dive and understand the level of the problem. If you don't understand the level of the problem, it will be so difficult to really know where you're solving this problem from. The Society of Integrative Oncology have a lot of role to deep dive and understand, do some survey, do some research to know what, what we can do, right? That is number one. Number two is to probably support patients. I love this perspective of empowering patients. We can do this by hosting training, by hosting engagement that empower patients and understand, allow them to share their story. You know, I remember the society provided scholarship to some of our patients to attend the conference that was done last year. We need more of that kind of support because when you are empowering patients, don't forget you are empowering the community because you empower them, they go back to empower other patients, other patients go back to empower the community. So I think that needs, they also need to probably find ways to fund programs, fund research, fund fund interventions that could really provide um, that could really provide and test test programs that could really provide support to, to, to patients. Yeah. So these are different things I think uh, that can be done to really make progress. Mm, thank you so much for mentioning the Society for Integrative Oncology scholarship program for um people to attend the conferences, to network, and learn more about the cutting-edge research in integrative oncology. And I, I know that we were able to give um, several scholarships to Nigerian patient advocates in the past years, and it's been really a, a thrill to to get to know them and, and work with them, not just during the conference, but after the conference, beyond. So I, I really, I love all of these ideas that you have, have suggested really a a call to action for us to all work together to create a more equitable world and improve the the cancer experience for for people worldwide. We have a few minutes left. I mean, I I hate to end our conversation because it's been so enlightening and, and really the important work that your organization is doing in Nigeria. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners last words well um i think one just last word i want to share is just to really say that 
World Cancer Day is such an important, really, day to commit to close the cancer care gap. But the truth is that um, some communities across the world, some countries across the world, do not actually just have a um, gap. Some of them actually have like a hole. Oh boy, yeah. We have to think about them even closing the entire hole, let alone of gap. So this is where the problem is. People are just so disconnected from care. Women are so just disconnected from information. Women are really don't even have vaccine to protect themselves. When you are talking about care, you are uh, talking about care gap. You are talking about sometimes even people making choice between vaccines. Mm -hmm. In many countries in Africa and in Nigeria, people don't even have a choice to choose which vaccine to take because they don't even have even one. So while we are all thinking about closing the gap, let's remember that so many communities have things that are bigger than gap. They have hole to close. And a cancer patient in Nigeria, Lagos, a cancer patient in, in Boston, a cancer patient in New York, a cancer patient in London, is the same cancer patient. What really differentiates these people is what they have access to. Mm. So if women have access to the kind of, not maybe equal kind of care, but if they have equitable care, we could really provide support and address these inequalities and inequities in, in cancer care. So, uh, so I really just want to encourage everyone to do what they can to provide support to women who are far away that are disconnected from care. That is so beautifully said. You know, in the United States, we often say that zip code is a determinant of health outcomes and life expectancy. I have one more question for you. I know that you have welcomed a new baby girl into your family. <laughs> and I yeah. have hearty congratulations to you and your wife, <laughs> Thank Sunshine. You. Thank you so much. My my question is, what kind of world would you like for your, your daughter to grow up in? So, I mean, one really response I would give is, I want to see a world where um, a, a young woman like my daughter, because of where she comes from or because of who she is, or because of her name, or because of the country where she is from, should not be a determinant to the kind of care she have access to, the kind of clinical trial she have access to, the kind of support she should be able to have access to. I believe that to see a world where global health will truly be global for her, I really want to see a world where you know, every community should be able to have access to at least a vaccine to protect them away from cervical cancer. You know, I, I mean, it, this question is so close to my heart because I was already discussing this with my wife. Like, I can't wait for my daughter to get to the age where she needs to be vaccinated against, uh, you know, cervical cancer. And I think that's so important because. Many families really want to do this, but 
if you don't have access to it, what would you do? Yeah, I have no words. Yeah, we can make that change. We can make the change. We know the solution. The world knows the solution. But also, it looks like sometimes some part of the world benefits by ensuring that other part of the world don't have access to something. So until we begin to really see global health from a truly global health perspective, that way we can really make progress. Yeah, you know, um, the Society for Integrative Oncology has a book club that the Health Equity uh, Committee is is reading and is recommended. And it's, it's really um, a global perspective on health equity. And while health disparities are everyone's problem, everyone, every country around the world. Renzi, I hate to end our conversation, at least in the podcast. I know that, that we'll be continuing the conversation uh, long after we go off the air. Thank you so much for joining us today. And you have put a spotlight on some of the many critical questions that face our global society today. And I look forward to continuing the conversation with you uh, and looking for solutions to many of these problems around health equity and disparity in cancer care. And I'd like to thank our listeners today. We'll see you next time for our next podcast. Absolutely. Bye-bye.